it's always a blessing to be able to stand here and, and look out and there's actually quite a number of people and it's, uh, it's a wonderful praise, wonderful praise. Especially coming to this time of year when we, our thoughts are really tuned towards the Lord and that should be our thoughts and our heart's desire. Often we get distracted by so many other things though, don't we? Let's, uh, let's bow our hearts in prayer and uh, we'll come into this study. Father, we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. A gift to your Lord that was given to us, Father, who don't deserve it. A gift, dear Father, that was blessed by you, anointed by you for the salvation of many, dear Lord. We bow our hearts and our heads to you, dear Lord, in prayer. I ask you, dear Father, that you would enlighten us and illuminate us to the nature of sin that dwells within this world and the reason why you came that we would understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, the more fuller, that we would understand the wonderful privilege and the blessing and the mercy that's come from you, that we can rejoice, dear Father, in the salvation that we share and that we could also be convicted, dear Lord, of our shortcomings. For many they are, dear Lord, within our lives that continue to fester. I ask you, dear Lord, that you'll bless this time for each one of us we would seek your wonderful face, dear Father, and we would humble ourselves in prayer. We thank you for your blessing. We ask you, dear Lord, and praise you in Jesus' name that you would be with us. Amen. Put your Bibles with you. Turn to the book of Romans. We're continuing our work in Romans. We're in chapter 3 of Romans at the moment. And we'll be reading from verse from verse 5. Romans chapter 3. And we'll read from verse 5 and we'll take this through to verse 20. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid... For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulchre. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. As we take our study through the Gospel to the Romans, the epistle, the letter that Paul had written to the people of Rome. One of the things that we find in the first five chapters 
is his desire for the gospel itself to be fully revealed to people. That they would understand their state, their predicament and their need for a saviour. When we go through this text and this portion of the text this morning, it's it's a pretty hard one. It's a harsh one because it's really pouring down the condemnation of God unto the people. That they would know their state, that they would know where they stand, where they're at. God desires to do this because we sit there a lot of the times not knowing that we're lost. You know, the lost that's out there don't know that they're lost. It's very difficult to be able to bring somebody who is lost, that doesn't know they're lost, to be found. To understand exactly where they're at, they often don't know. You think of a, um, you know those satellite navigation systems, you've got those, you've got those in the car, and you've driven around all day with these satellite navigation, you know, and by, by this stage you have no idea where you are. If it wasn't for that, you wouldn't have any idea where you are. And then you get back into the car after your meeting or whatever you've done and you, and you realise, I completely have lost my bearings. I've got no idea which way north even is. So you turn the little machine on and you wait and you wait and you wait because, you see, you haven't found yourself yet. You don't know where you are in the picture of things. You don't know until all of a sudden the little satellite thing reveals itself and points, I'm right there, good, now I know where to find myself. You know, there's a, uh, there's a prison that exists which no man can escape. You know that? There is a single prison and no one can escape it. There is no way you can possibly escape it. You know which one it is? It's the one that you don't know you're in. With the gospel, there's two segments to the gospel. The first is to know exactly where you stand in the whole scheme of life and the world and this universe with respect to your relationship to God. And only then through the knowledge of sin can you then seek mercy from him. And then you have that glorious grace, the mercy that comes from the Saviour, the one who desired more than anything else to show you your state but to have the relationship with you that he so desires and you so need. When we look at that passage and it says that as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. That excludes me too, you know. It becomes personal. Romans chapter 1 is an arrow that points down. So when you look at Romans chapter 1, you can see it as an arrow that points directly straight down. It's, a, it's like a spiral that goes straight down. And it shows the continuing depravity of man, what happens to man when he should know God rejects him. And you see his state, you see his behaviour, and it moves straight down the line. Romans chapter 1 shows you what man's condition becomes like. It becomes like. It shows his complete depravity. Romans chapter 2 is a little bit different because it actually points to two types of people, the Jew and the Gentile. Oh, interestingly, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. So it refers to all of us, all of humanity, all people. Here in Romans chapter 3, it's important that you don't take away the... We've got the universal sin. We understand that everybody is a sinner. But please, we need to focus that this is speaking particularly 
about you and I. When it says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one, it excludes everybody to be righteous. There is none that are righteous. There are three particular points, four particular points that I wanted to bring out this morning that the text itself highlights with respect to our sinful nature and what we are like. And we're going to go through those one at a time and they are basically these four. The sinful nature takes no responsibility. The sinful nature takes no responsibility. The second one is the sinful nature is proud. The sinful nature is proud. The third is the sinful nature does not seek after God. And the fourth is the knowledge of my sin seeks mercy. The knowledge of my sin seeks mercy. The first one, a sinful nature takes no responsibility. Have a look at the text there in verse 5. It simply states this. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. The sinful nature here doesn't not only not take responsibility, but it shoots it off. The sinful nature has a tendency to not want to take responsibility for anything. We don't want to be responsible for our actions. We don't want to have any condemnation put upon us for anything that we've done wrong. But look at the depravity of this particular one. Now, Paul's bringing the argument here. And this is what they're doing. What are they doing here? They're, they're, they're trying to shift the responsibility. Look what it says. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? Can you think about the level of depravity that's going on here? Our unrighteousness highlights or makes manifest God's righteousness, right? So therefore, the more we sin, the more God stands apart, doesn't he? He stands apart from us because we sin. Now, if that's a good thing, well, why is God taking vengeance? You never underestimate the depraved mind and our ability to rationalise anything. This is incredible. You know, it's, in, it's absolutely incredible. Not only are they wanting to shift their responsibility, but who are they trying to blame for their own sin? They're trying to blame God for their own nature. The next part of the text says the same thing. For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his, unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? You know, th- th- this isn't small stuff. This is fairly large because... And he goes on and he says, let us do evil that good may come. Let us do evil that good may come. It's amazing how often people want to blame God for their problems. God instructs us to spend time with him, to grow in him, to obey him. We've got the word of God that actually illuminates everything for us. It, it tells us all our do's and all our don'ts. It tells us the wonderful blessings that if we do and the problems that are going to be associated with if we don't. And so we don't. And then we blame God because of the problems that we have. There's people that are doing it all the time. It, it originates somewhere, you know. It does originate somewhere. It's the very nature of sin. 
It's a sinful nature that actually describes this. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. What I want to show you is the origin of this, where this actually came from. Where did it come that all of a sudden we're here to blame God for our problems? God can't be blaming us. God can't be upset at us. Because, you know, in the end, really, it's his fault. It's his fault. We don't take any responsibility. Do you know the, uh, the doctrine of evolution, the belief in evolution, also has the same thing. You're a product of your environment. You're a product of society that's around you. And because you're a product of what's going on around you, you therefore aren't really responsible. Evolution at its core teaches that man has no free will. Couldn't help doing what he did over there because, you know, he grew up in a, uh, in a family that was pretty, pretty much depraved. He got abused by his father um, and society just moulded him, you know. So much for all our court systems. So much for all the justice. Genesis chapter 3. I'm looking from verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them were both of, of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Abraham and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Incredible, is that? Eh? Well, what, what nerve is that, you know? The woman you gave me, the woman you gave me, well, she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and, and I did eat. Whose fault was it? Well, if you didn't give me the woman in the first place, I wouldn't be in this predicament. I wouldn't be in this problem. This isn't my fault, it's yours. You shouldn't have given me the woman, you know? Makes perfect sense. Some blokes still say that, you know. But it's not true, is it? It's not true. But then just in case that didn't work, the woman that thou gavest to me, now it's the woman that thou gavest to me, she gave me of the fruit and I did eat. She gave me of the fruit and I did eat. Again, what's our nature? We want to shift the responsibility. The incredible thing about it is, and you find this, and think about this in your own life, in your own experience, in your own families. Where do we often shift the responsibility? How often do we shift the responsibility from ourselves to the accuser? How often do we do that? You know, sweetheart, you didn't take the garbage out last night. Well, you know, sweetheart, you didn't iron my shirt last week. How often do we do that? 
How many of you are training your children to do exactly that by the arguments that you have one with another? Where's the heart of reflection? Where's the heart that, that desires repentance, that, that desires to see their own faults and grow from them? Where's that heart? What's being evidenced here? It's a sinful nature, isn't it? It's a sinful nature that's being made manifest here, isn't it? It's not, it's not a humility. It's not a spirit of God nature. This is a sinful nature. And every single one of us have experienced this. The wonderful psalmist said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139. King David. And another one, he says, Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. Same author. In another one, he says, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Is it any wonder God called David a man after his own heart? It's the heart of David. The heart of David is one that is broken before the Lord, that acknowledges his own sin before the Lord and doesn't, does not palm his responsibility off. When he was charged by God at that particular time, when he numbered the people, do you remember that? When he numbered the people and, and God said to him, I'll give you three, I'll give you three punishments. You pick one. And he said, let me fall into the hands of the Lord, but let me not fall into the hands of mine enemies. And what did God do? God then judged the people. Many were killed. And what did David say? Put your judgment on me, Lord. What did these sheep do? It was me. It was my sin, not theirs. This is our heart. When you're chastised by someone, when you're confronted by someone, please consider your part in the error. It, it doesn't fit that we say, well, I'm not going to apologise until they apologise for what they did. Is that what the Bible says? Oh, it doesn't say that. It doesn't indicate that at all. You know, when you, when you accept your responsibility... When you, when, you, when you come to that person and, and you go to them and humbly go to them and you say, my part was this and I'm really sorry that I've offended, that I've done this, that I've done that, whatever it is, you're free. The Bible says if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when you carry your condemnation to walk for other people and you carry that continually, you're never free. Because you're spending your time blaming everybody else when you also had a part to play. We're not perfect, brethren. None of us are. None of us are. You know? It saddens me when people don't want to come to church because of their own sin, because they think we've got it all together. <laughs> they, we don't have it all together. We just don't. You know? And this is evidence for it. A sinful nature doesn't take responsibility. The second point is a sinful nature is proud. Have a look at um, verse 9. It says, what then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Are we better than they? Are we better than they? Are we better than they? Oh, you're looking at me, you're looking at me. But what about him? Oh, I'm better than him. At least I don't... I don't... There is none righteous. No, not one. Sort of evens out the playing field a little bit, doesn't it? 
If there is none righteous, no, not one, then that excludes anybody to be better. None can be better. When we are unrighteous, when the Bible says so clearly that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, it's the glory of God that sets the bar. There's no point arguing about what level underneath that bar you are at. The point is you need to be at that bar or above. You can't be, there is no, everything under that bar is unrighteous. Everything under it is unrighteous. But that originates somewhere too. That originates somewhere too. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. If you don't have a really big concordance, grab it into the middle of the Bible and turn right. And you'll come close to Isaiah. (coughs) We're looking for Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. Everything, every sin, every, every pride, everything that we're manifesting here, what we're showing here, has an origin. Every part of it. So you can see clearly that this is nothing more than a, than a particular nature that's depraved and that's sinful and that's completely opposite to God. Verse 12. We'll just read from verse 12 to 18. See if you can identify this individual. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How, incidentally, if you have a Bible that says, O morning star, son of the dawn, please throw it out. I won't say it any clearer than that. It is rubbish. The morning star, the bright morning star is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is made clear within the text of Scripture. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. The text is Lucifer. It is the light bearer. It is a proper name. Okay, not morning star, son of the dawn. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the, congrega- upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. The five eye wills of the devil, the five eye wills of Satan is nothing more than pride that has been lifted up into his heart. When If you looked at Ezekiel chapter 28, it's worth marking in your Bibles, but God is actually speaking through Ezekiel and he says, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Who was in Eden, the garden of God? It was a serpent, wasn't it? There was a relationship here, a direct relationship between this king of of Tyrus and this individual. (coughs) And he says, Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold, the workmanship of thy tabrets, and of thy pipes. Tabrets are tambourines and pipes are flutes this individual was musical be careful with the music that you listen to please anybody seen the triple m logo you know the triple m logo the radio program there it is it's a cherubim playing a guitar i wonder who that's referring to was prepared in thee the day that thou was created 
Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee as a profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground and will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. And Lord Jesus said that all pride and all proud hearts and everybody that exalts themselves shall be abased. But if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. Pride identifies itself with the devil himself. You and I have nothing to be proud of. The self-esteem movement, though we can understand its desires, we can understand its motivation, because there's so many young people that are, that are doing themselves in. There's so many young people that are broken of heart and broken of spirit. The self-esteem movement seeks to give them a level of self-exaltation, that they would esteem themselves. Now, the Bible says not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Another text, it says, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. The self-esteem movement, for all its desire and for all its sincerity, is in error. Because it's not ourselves that we need to lift up. It's not ourselves that we need to esteem. But it's the Lord Jesus Christ. The direction that they need to be directing these young people to is the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand something. Though the Bible teaches with all clarity that I am nothing but a worm, that I am nothing before God, what is man that God should magnify him? Though the Bible teaches that with all clarity, that we are nothing but broken sinners, that we need salvation, that we need redemption, that we stand on the precipice of hell, and nothing but the grace of God is holding us up. Yet the infinite creator of the universe thought of our value so high that he was willing to die to redeem us back to him. There's an incredible contrast, isn't it, with the scripture? On the one hand, we're not worth anything. Certainly not worth anything to ourselves. And on the other hand, we are the very prize of God. We are the very prize of God. This is what we fight for. And Satan knows it, and that's why he fights in the opposite direction. He wants nothing other than your death. He wants you dead, is his end goal. And if he can't have you dead, he'll have you ineffective. Ineffective. And pride is one of those things that actually makes us completely Ineffective. Suicide is one of those things that we often, we often think that it's, it's the individual that was grieved and that was saddened and, and the like. And, and I, 
And I've had argument against me for the things that I've said with respect to it, and, and I understand it because it comes from people who have experienced the loss. I had a, a cousin who took his own life as well. But it is a signature of absolute and perfect selfishness in these individuals. It's tragic, but it is pride that puts them in that position. They exalt themselves. It's their own misery that they want to end. And they completely disregard the broken hearts of the people that they're going to live behind. Sin is manifest within their last action. There's, there's been Christian teachers out there that have actually, actually taught that if you're born again, if you commit suicide, you'll go to heaven. There's nothing more wrong than this. There's nothing more wrong than this. This is a lie of the devil. If you're born again, you're not going to kill yourself. It's not a fruit of the Spirit of God. The fruit of murder is the fruit of the devil. It's not the fruit of the Spirit of God. Jean Lamarck was an individual who, who starred in the film and the book Les Miserables. He jumped off a bridge to end his own life because he couldn't accept mercy. Jean Valjean was the, was the, was the person that was the, the one that he was after. All of his life, he gave Jean Valjean misery in this, in this novel. He kept on trying to do good. Jean Valjean received the redemption. He received grace. And he lived a life in light of that grace. And Jean Lamarck, the general, saw him only as a criminal. Came a time when the general found himself at the mercy of Jean Valjean, the ex-prisoner, the, the, the running convict. And instead of killing the general, which he had the opportunity to do, he had mercy on him. Just like the mercy that he received. Just like the grace that he received. When he received the grace, he received it with humility. He received it and he extended it to all the people that were around him. Jean Lamarck was different. He received it completely opposite to that. He couldn't accept mercy. He had pride. Too much pride. And rather than have the mercy of someone else to give him life, he took his own. The very fall of Satan was due to pride rising up in his heart. Satan is the true picture of pride. Every time you or I exercise it, understand whose image we're relating to. A proud man is a man who cannot identify with Christ. If pride is something that is a picture of you, if you are looking at exalting yourself, if all you want is your own stardom, is your own thing to be, you know, if you're identified by your own values, either you are not of God, either you are not of God, or your faith is so small, it's so difficult to be able to distinguish between you and the sinners of this world. Brethren, it's a sin. Pride is a sin. The knowledge of God brings humility, not pride. 
It's not how much I esteem myself that matters, it's how much I esteem the Lord of mercy. The sinful nature is both proud and it won't take responsibility. The third point, the sinful nature does not seek after God. Verse 11, book of Romans. It says, There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. There is none that seeketh after God. There is none that seeketh after God. This lack of seeking the Lord is linked to pride. Is actually found in Hosea, who said this. He said, And the pride of Israel testifieth to his face that they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. An unwillingness to seek after God demonstrates a lack of understanding. An unwillingness to seek after God demonstrates, (coughs) excuse me, a sinful nature. It demonstrates a sinful nature. There's only really two ways that we seek after God when you really think about it. Two fundamental ways that we can seek after God. One is in his word. The second way is through prayer. Now, I know and I'm sure that there are people in this church that are going to find this very, very uncomfortable. And I understand it. But if you're not dedicated to the Lord in prayer, if, if, if you're spending no time at all seeking the Lord in his word, then that sinful nature has really risen to the top for you. Oh, again, either you don't know the Lord, either you don't know him, or your faith is so lacking. It doesn't seek him in his word is the first point. The sinful nature does not seek him in his word. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, it tells us of the natural man. It tells us that the natural man doesn't have the ability to even understand the word of God, let alone seek it. They can't see it. To them, it's a closed book. It says, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The context is the word of God in the previous verse. It tells 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. The Gospel of John, chapter 8. We're speaking now about the natural man. We're speaking now about the simple nature of sin, the full nature of sin. This is what God is trying to identify. Remember the text here in the context is a simple one. You need to know where you're at. And identifying where you are gives you the ability to be able to come to the Lord. This is part of the gospel. In verses 42 to 46, what Jesus does here is identify a lack of being able to receive God's words with the progeny of Satan himself. Verse 42, Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is not no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, 
for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? If I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. The Bible speaks as a bit of an identifier for the last days. It speaks of the identifier in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and it says, For the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine, but will, after their own lusts, shall heap, un- shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. I remember preaching in a last church that I was in, and, and you know, as a, as, a, as a young preacher, you really, really, really don't want to get anything wrong, so you've got a lot of Bible in there, you know. And, and, you, and a lot of it, you know, it probably takes up most of the sermon. And to me, that's a good thing, and I don't believe any preacher should change. But the one, one comment that I had was, yeah, yeah, the preaching was all right. You know, there's just, just too much Bible in there, mate. Just a bit too much Bible, you know. I don't want to hear the word of God. See, they'd rather hear stories. They'd rather hear stories. Give them stories, fables. The text here says fables. They shall be turned unto fables, Right? And we often get taught that, and it's, look, it's understandable to use illustrations that everybody can relate to, and that's fine. But what I've discovered is that people remember the illustrations rather than the Word of God. If you're going to be using illustrations, my, this is my, my particular bent, right? I, I could be wrong, right? but if you're going to be using illustrations, my preference is to use the Scripture because it's abundant. It's filled with illustrations. Yet we are in every way to try and make things clear. But the natural tendency for so many people is no Bible, no Word of God. The Word of God and the lack of desiring the Word of God, the lack of reading of the Word of God is a, is a picture of a sinful nature. Oh, you've got to be so careful. We've got to be so careful because our desire should be to know the Lord. Our desire should be to read the Word. If we don't have the word of God in us, if we can't abide in the words of Jesus, what does it say about our state? It's a really dangerous position to be in. Remember in Matthew chapter 7 that Pastor Frank was speaking about the other week. He said, many will come to me in that day saying, Lord, Lord, many will come to me. Have we not cast out demons in your sight? Didn't we eat with you in another text? Didn't we sit with you and sup with you and eat with you? He says, depart from me. I never Knew you. You'll notice that he says, I never knew you. He didn't say, I knew you once, but now I don't know you anymore. He said, I never knew you. From the beginning, I never knew you. You're not of me. If you can't abide in my word, then you are not of me. So abiding in the word of God is one picture that you are growing in the Lord, that the spirit of God is rising to the surface rather than the nature of sin. Pastor Frank's mentioned it many times. Whichever one you feed is the one that's going to be growing. The psalmist said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Peter says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. The psalmist says again about the words of God, he says that they are more to be desired more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. What a wonderful hope. There's every positive 
every possible positive in reading and devouring the Word of God. But many of us could probably uh, more affiliate with this one from Hebrews chapter 5. For when the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and they become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Babies are really cute. Not when they're 40, though. By the time they get to 40, you don't want them rolling around on the ground and dribbling over the floor, you know, and, and still trying to feed them with a little spoon. You don't want to see them doing that. I mean, that's, I don't know, it just doesn't sit right, you know. Yeah, Paul's describing a brethren. He's describing brethren here as those that have need of milk still. Still. Second part of this other point is that the sinful nature does not seek him in prayer. The sinful nature does not seek him in prayer. This one is worth turning to. Look at chapter eight. Oh, sorry, chapter nine in the book of Acts. Sorry, Acts. So one one book back from Romans. Have a look at chapter nine and see what you can recognise here with this text. Chapter nine. We're looking at verses, just two verses, verses ten and eleven. <clears throat> Sorry, Natalie, can you give me a photo? Can you give me a little glass of water? Thanks, sweetheart. Okay, Acts chapter 9, verses 10 and 11. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. For behold, he prayeth. Ananias knew who Saul of Tarsus was. Because straight after this verse, he says, but, but, but Lord, I've heard a lot about this guy. I've heard a lot about him. I mean, he's, he's, he's taken people and he's, he's, he's persecuted us. You know, I know this guy. Behold, he prayeth. Thanks, sweetie. The Lord expected with all clarity that the understanding and the knowledge that he is praying should demonstrate to Ananias with all clarity that he is changed. He is not the same Saul of Tarsus. He is not the same. The very identifier of a Christian, one who knows the Lord, is that he prays, that he seeks after the Lord, that he seeks after him with all his heart. That's the context there. Remember what Saul was like. We understand it. What's our prayer life like? As Christians, where do we stand? Where do we stand with the Lord in prayer? Where do we stand with, with respect to our relationship with the Lord? Is the sinful nature rising up in us? Is that what we can see? If you have no interest in the Lord and communicating with the Lord in prayer, then where, where are you at really? Have we received the gift of the Lord our God? Have we received that Holy Spirit of promise? That he's given us. A life really dedicated to prayer is a life that demonstrates a sinful nature is dominant. This nature has nothing to do with God. It wants nothing to do with God. It does not desire God nor care for the knowledge of him. These, these two portions that I've just touched on is summarised incredibly in the book of Job. 
In chapter 21, Job simply says this, Therefore they say unto God, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit should we have if we pray unto him? We desire not the knowledge of his ways. Yeah, is this where we're at? We desire not. Is this any wonder why the church, the Bible talks about, the very church itself is going to be like in the last days? You've read it in Timothy, what men are going to be like. They're going to be lovers of their own selves rather than lovers of God. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. They're going to be running after everything else except for the Lord our God. We have a gospel message to be shared to people. To share the wonderful love of Christ. They have eternity to be thinking about. And we've forgotten it. We've forgotten it. So many of us have forgotten it. The modern church out there, mate, doesn't have a knowledge of his ways at all. And it's tragic. The sinful nature will not seek God because it is proud and it won't take responsibility. The last point. The knowledge of my sin seeks mercy. For as much as the sinful heart does not seek after God, we know that a humble heart can. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6, he simply says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 17 says, I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. Turn in your Bibles to this last portion in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Next time we, we touch on this um, on the book of Romans, please understand that the, that the real high point of the depravity of man culminates here in verse 20, chapter 3, verse 20. Because the Lord in his wonderful mercy is trying to help all of mankind recognise their nature, that they are all guilty before God. Okay? It culminates there. It's like it reaches a high point and it finishes right there in verse 20. Of chapter 3. Next time when we bring the message forward, we're going to be talking about the wonderful grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the salvation that's found in him. We're going to be talking about the propitiation of sin. We're going to be talking about the atonement that he's made, that we are now one with him, that we are saved, born again by the blood of Christ. The gospel message has those two parts to it. But the first part here is identifying our need, identifying exactly where we stand before a holy God. This is a beautiful story, this one. It's found in chapter 7, verse 36. Verse 36. I'll just read to 50. One of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat at the Pharisee's house, bought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answering unto him, unto him, Simon said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. 
There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed him 500 pence, the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. My sins, which are many, are forgiven. When you know you're a sinner, when you know the death and the depravity, when you know that sin continues to rise up within your own life, even though you're born again, you're saved, when you know that, and you know that you're bought with the blood of Christ, you love him much. You love him much. You come to the foot of the Saviour. You come to the foot of the cross. You acknowledge your sin before him. And you can't help but be joyful that the Lord had mercy upon me, a sinner. It's the greatest hope and joy that you can ever know. There is no risk ever of being lost because of what Christ has done. When you've come to the foot of the cross and you've humiliated yourself before him, recognising your own nature before him, you know that there is no hope within you to do anything. You can't be good enough. You can't save yourself. Our own faith comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. He asks us and, and, and we can pray and ask for faith to grow. This is why we ask of it. When you know what you're like, when you know where you stand, your sins, which are many, how many? You'd be amazed when you dig deeply enough the level of depravity that you can fall into. They're forgiven. Your love for God is in direct proportion to your knowledge of how much you have been forgiven. (laughs) Isn't that true? That's the text. Your love for the Lord is directly in proportion that you would know how much you've been forgiven. It's directly related. And you love him for what he's done. Not for what you can do. Pastor Frank made it clear after we've done everything that we can do, after everything that we can do, we can obey the Lord. We can can work in the church. We can do this. We can do that. We can do everything to the fullest intent that we can. And we come to the Lord and we know that we are unprofitable servants because we have only done that which was our duty to do. Can't do enough. I'll finish with this verse. Jeremiah verse 20, chapter 29 says this. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall you call upon me and you shall go and pray unto me and I will hearken unto you and you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. 
and I will be found of you, saith the Lord. This Christmas, you're going to have an opportunity to share the gospel. We're going to have an opportunity this afternoon to share the gospel. That's the gift. That's the gift that's been given to us. The sinful nature doesn't want anything to do with the Lord until they know they are sinners. And that's our role. We bring the word of grace, the word of peace, the word of hope and joy and life. We bring them to a lost world that doesn't know they're lost. And we show them the path of righteousness. We show them that in Christ and in Christ alone is the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. I pray that this Christmas will be a blessing to you. And I pray that your family will come to the knowledge of the Lord. And I pray that your life will become a witness and a light in this world. Especially during this time. Especially during this time. Let's pray. Father, your wonderful words, dear Lord, give us hope and give us joy and give us life and give us light. Lord, it shows to us where we are. It demonstrates to us with all clarity which nature, dear Father, it is that rises within us, which nature it is that dominates us. Father, it doesn't matter, dear Lord, how often and how long people have been professing Christ. If this is a nature that they have recognised, dear Lord, that dominates their own life, I pray, dear Father, that you would show mercy on them and that they would seek your face, that they would seek you early, that they would seek the Lord, our God, and believe and hope. Brethren, just as I'm praying this, keep your heads bowed, please. If there's any one of you that have already identified this within your own heart, if you've identified some of the things that I've said that you may not be saved, if that describes you for some of these texts, then quietly within your heart now, ask the Lord to come into your life. Beg of his forgiveness. Today is the day of salvation. Wait till tomorrow. In the privacy of your own will, you can ask the Lord to come into your life and you can be born again. You can be forgiven and you can start a new, a new life. But now, now don't wait until tonight. Don't wait until tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Father, I pray, dear Lord, any who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is what your word teaches. This is what it says. It's a promise, Father, from you. And I ask you, dear Lord, that anyone, anyone that has asked for you to come into their life, that you would forgive them of their sin, right now, dear Lord, that you would do so, that you would fill them with the Spirit of God and that they would begin life anew. I praise you for this time. I thank you for your word. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.